Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. I'm joined today by prolific thought leader, Raj Sisodia. You can connect with Raj at his website, Raj Sisodia, R-A-J-S-I-S-O-D-I-A.com. And all of his socials and books can be reached on his website as well. Raj is the author of the book, Conscious Capitalism. He's a co-founder of the Conscious Capitalism Movement. He's author of Shakti Leadership, Firms of Endearment, and most recently, Awaken, which is the focal point of today's conversation. In Awaken, Raj explores his really challenging past. Awaken, to me, is an endeavor in healing and understanding family dynamics, cultural dynamics, and making sense of your place in the world. Raj has really come to understand in his own experience that achievement and forward motion cannot provide the healing that we really need. We need to take a look at our past and in Awaken and in this conversation, Raj really deeply and candidly explores all of that. We also talk about what he's most known for, the popularized conscious capitalism movement and how business, instead of being solely for profit and making money, can be a real vehicle for positive change and elevation of consciousness. That seems to be the through line of all of Raj's work. He wants to elevate consciousness and help people make change for good. This conversation is a rich exploration of so many things. I really had to do very little except ask a couple of questions because Raj is just so polished and so thoughtful. And I think you're going to really dig this conversation. So with all of that said, Settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with Raj Sisodia. Raj, thank you so much for joining me on Mike's Search for Meaning. I I know that Man's Search for Meaning is probably the book that has impacted you most, and your most recent book, Awaken, has really had a big impact on me. And and right before we hit record, I said I wanted to share the part that had the biggest impact on me because you spoke about being a cycle breaker in, in the book. And I it's really it resonated deeply in my body and in my soul when you described yourself as a cycle breaker because I have called my dad that several times. He came from a lineage of very domineering, dominant, angry unable to express themselves men. And my dad was a cycle breaker. And the impact that that has had on my life and and therefore the impact that I'm now able to have as a result of his work is profound. And I imagine that you doing this work and being the cycle breaker, just reading the book, I could see the impact that it's had on your family, on India, your country, and the global impacts that you continue to have I just wanted to start this podcast by sincerely thanking you for doing your work and and being a cycle breaker. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I do think we have to step into that. Otherwise, it's a cascading effect across the generations. We become victims of victims. Mm. 
And somebody at some point has to say the cycle stops here. I mean, there could be a virtuous or a positive cycle. We want to keep it going. But there are many of the ones that are quite harmful and causing a lot of suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. And in your family dynamic, there are lots of patterns that you're doing work to to break the cycle. And it's not the virtuous ones. So I want to get to all of that. But I think maybe a really great place to start, which is where I start with everyone in this podcast, is the same question that I always ask, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Yeah, you know, if my father was home, it was very different, you know, and uh, he traveled quite a bit, so he wasn't always home, and I didn't know him until I was seven anyway. But if my father was home, the dinner table was quite stiff, quite formal, you had to be on your best behavior, you know, there was not a lot of two-way conversation, it was really my fa our father telling us things or, you know, not really asking us very much. So, And we, we felt a little bit tense, to be honest, most of the time. I don't remember very much sort of the sort of the raucous dinners, unless, and this is a big caveat, unless it was a dinner that happened after people had a few drinks, right? And, you know, later on in life, that became common when I went to India, our dinners were like 11 p.m., or so, you know, after several hours of sitting and having drinks. And that's a big part of the culture that I came from. And it's something for my father that was really a necessity, you know, in a way. Uh, he, he needed that alcohol to kind of soothe himself and relax himself and be able to open up and so forth. Uh, and so it was really sort of the alcohol-fueled, you know, sort of lightness at times when that happened. But when I was a child growing up, like I said, I remember it being rather tense. You know, it was one of those households where we were all relaxed until you heard father's car or his scooter in those days in India pull into the driveway. And then everybody was like, oh, you better make sure everything is okay. And you're, you know, everything is in its place and you're clean and well-behaved and, you know, all of that. So, yeah, there was a little bit of stress and tension around it. Mm-hmm. Could you, could you speak a little bit about, you traveled a lot when you were younger, lived in, in various parts of the world, and it seems like it's been pretty formative in the way that you now have a, a strong global presence, and, and you don't look at issues just locally, but rather, what are what's the global impact of, of I, I guess, your upbringing, but also the work that you do? And so what, what impact would you say living in lots of different places when you were growing up had on the way that you view yourself and view the world now? Yeah, so I was in India until the age of seven. I would say the first five years in a little tiny village in the middle of India, maybe 5,000 people, no electricity, of course, in those days, no running water, you know, very, very rustic uh, circumstances. Uh, part of this uh, feudal joint family with my grandfather and uncles and aunts and lots of people living in this kind of a fortress-like house on the top of a hill. And then two years in the city, starting schooling in India, and that's with my mother's siblings and, uh, and a caretaker. Uh, no, no parents were there. And then my father came back from Canada. So he had gone to get his PhD in agriculture science. So my father was unusual in that coming out of that village environment where hardly anybody was highly educated, most people finished schooling at fourth grade or maybe eighth grade and so forth. Very few people even completed high school. But he was very ambitious and very bright. And so he insisted on getting an education. 
against my grandfather's objections and finally my grandfather allowed him to not only get a high school diploma but then a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree and then his professors said you need to get a PhD and he sent him to Canada. So he came back when I was seven and I had no memory of him at that point because he had been gone about five years. And then as soon as soon after he came back, we moved from India to Barbados. He got a job with the British West Indies Sugar Corporation working on sugarcane research. And suddenly we you can imagine for a young child to be airlifted out of India and you're standing in London and watching the changing of the guard. You know, and I kind of use that metaphor in the book. You know, I had been my mother had been my sole parent until then. And now my father had come back into my life. And it was a, a changing of the guard, a very different regime, if you will. And then we uh, land in Barbados and we spent two years there. It was quite a culture shock, of course. You know, the, the change was enormous, but also exciting at that age, you know. And uh, I went to, was in two different schools there. So from the age of seven to nine. And then my father got a job in California, in Salinas, which is the home of John Steinbeck near San Francisco and Monterey County, about 100 miles from San Francisco. So we moved from Barbados. We actually went in between to New York and then Montreal. We spent a month in Montreal. The World's Expo was happening. Expo 67 was happening in Montreal. So we literally spent a month there living with a French family and experiencing that World's Fair. And then moved to California, where I was there from the age of 9 to 11, two years. And those were really tumultuous times uh, in the world, especially in the United States, 67 to 69, and especially in California, which was kind of the home of the anti-war movement, you know, the hippies, all of that was happening, the psychedelic revolution that was going on, all the protests against the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement was, was, was still underway. Martin Luther King was shot while I was there, and that was a huge thing. And then a few months later, Robert Kennedy was shot. And we were watching live on TV as he was won the, he won the California primary for the Democratic nomination and would have gone on to become president and all likely would have. So these were all momentous things. And then after two years there, we moved to Canada. My father had an argument with his boss at the company. There was some ethical violation that was going on. So he quit his job without having any other job. And finally, he called his professors in Manitoba, in Canada, and uh, they offered him a professorship there. So we moved to Winnipeg uh, in Canada in March of 69, when my brother was all of nine days old. I had a brother who was born in California. And we took a month-long trip you know, to get to Winnipeg by road, you know, exploring all the places along the way. And then spent about nine months there. That was when the Apollo 11 landing happened. So I remember watching Neil Armstrong jumping around on the moon. And again, a huge momentous kind of episode, right, in the world. And then at the end of that year, my parents decided we were going back to India. So that was kind of my five-year journey outside India in these different cultures. And then being taken back to India, which was a huge reverse culture shock, readjusting. You know, at that age, you, know, you adjust very quickly to your new surroundings. And we forgot the language and we forgot so much about, you know, what life in India was like, that it was a huge shock in a way to go back into India and not even to one of the big cities. We were in a smaller city. And so the, you know, the, the kind of life that existed there at that time was radically different. You know, there was no television, there was hardly any radio, you know, it was a very, very 
poor country still is, but you know, com- compared to back then, it's India is a much more vibrant and uh, you know rich place now. So it was very challenging having to relearn the culture and all the sort of unwritten rules of that culture and fit right back into that society, especially the culture, subculture. You know, India is a vast country of so many diverse cultures within. You know, we have like 500 dialects and 25 national languages and hundreds of different castes and communities and everybody having their own unique qualities. So, so fitting back into my particular piece of that, which was the warrior caste, you know, the so-called Rajputs, which come from the state of Rajasthan originally, a very, very feudal, very patriarchal, you know, I would say, or misogynistic culture in many ways. So it was a tough adjustment back to India. And as I said, the schools, the culture, the language, all of that took a long time. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad for that challenge because had, I, had we not gone back and continued to uh, live out in the West, I think I would have been completely disconnected from my roots. Mm. You know, unlike today, unlike today, people can go back and forth easily. They can be on video chats and they can experience. And the world is much more of a globalized place. And back then, you know, you couldn't even make a phone call. All you could do was write letters. And you couldn't afford to go back, you know, maybe once in five years. So it's completely different. There were very few Indian people in the U.S. So you're, you're growing up in a completely alien culture. So so I would have been completely disconnected. So I mean, despite all the challenges of readjusting, in the long term, long run, I'm, I'm happy that we, we made that transition. It made me very adaptable. And I still have the ability to feel comfortable anywhere in the world because I had experienced these extremes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thank you for all the context and background. And I'm sure it, it might come up at, at various other points of the interview. But something that seems really central especially with the level of reflection that you've now done, something that seems central to your current work and who you are is this integration and weaving back and forth between masculine and feminine. And what I relate to, there's many things I relate to, but one of the things I deeply relate to about the book is when you describe that you were born as a male, gentle, peaceful, innocent. That's a big word that you use a lot. And yet, uh, being born into this warrior caste, into the Rajput culture, it was almost the exact opposite was expected of you. And so there's this this tension of I'm more like my mom. I have a deeply feminine energy, loving, caring, nurturing. And it seems to be more celebrated to be tougher, defiant, steadfast. And so it's I'm more like my mom, but I'm striving to be like my dad. And I I want his affection. I want his approval. So how do you how do you look at and this is a, a big question I, I guess but how do you look at masculine and feminine energy and and why do you think that you're uniquely fit to be talking about it because it, it really resonates with me too Yeah you know well I did grow up or I was born into a, an intensely masculine subculture and I would say India overall has a pretty masculine patriarchal culture, just like the United States. The United States is one of the most masculine cultures in the world, actually. But so is India, especially the patriarchal domination right, the, uh, of the father. At the same time, it also has a tradition of goddesses and goddess worship and so forth. You know, it's an interesting paradox. You know, the, the Hindu religion has tremendous reverence for the feminine, the divine feminine. Right, the harshest patriarch will sit down and then worship a goddess. 
right? And all of the beautiful good things in life are represented by goddess figures, whether it's knowledge, you know, whether it's prosperity, right? Whether it's uh, equanimity, you know, many of these things are represented in Lakshmi and Durga and Saraswati and all of them are goddesses, right? So there's an interesting energetic thing there that even though women may be suppressed and uh, sidelined, they can still see themselves in the divine. And I think that's one of the differences if you look in the West. You know, a friend of mine wrote a book called The Missing Mother God of the West, that there's not much of feminine presence in the Abrahamic traditions, right? If you look at Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, they're very much the father is the God, right? And the female, the mother is, is incidental, you know, if at all present in that. So, so that's the sort of the underlying structure. As I said, I was born into a particularly extreme version of the masculine domination, into a culture where we literally worshipped our guns, we worshipped our swords, you know, there's a festival. So, you know, there's a tradition in India of people actually paying homage to their the tools of their trade, their craft. So if you're a musician, you will actually put your musical instruments, you know, and you'll have a ceremony and you'll bow down to them, right? And, and likewise, different people have different professions. In the case of the warrior caste, the tools, you know, of our profession are the, are the weapons, Right? So the guns are worshipped, the swords are worshipped, all of that. And, and so that's kind of the undercurrent of it. And so I was born into that. But like I said, I, I, uh, I had parents who were extreme opposites. You know, as Carl Jung said, every man has an inner woman, every woman has an inner man. Most human beings are some kind of blend of masculine and feminine energy. Right? My mother happened to be at the end of the spectrum where it was pure feminine energy, but hardly any masculine energy. Right? So she never stood in her power, but she had this tremendous un unconditional love, forgiving and you know inclusive, nurturing, caring, compassionate. I mean, she never raised her voice to me in 62 years. Okay, not once, uh, not to her other children as well, and or not to anybody else. Not even you know in India, everybody middle class and above has people working for them, domestic help, right, servants. And they're very badly treated in many families. But I never, ever remember my mother saying a harsh word to anybody who worked for us. Right? On the other hand, I had my father, who was almost an extreme representation of all masculine energy and no feminine, right? that you could see, or he hid it very well. So it was all about you know, command and control and domineering and so forth. And, and I was, I think it's a nurture and nature, because I was a, my mother was a single mother for seven years, essentially the formative early years of my life. So she kind of shaped me in that way, in her own image. I'm her first child. But also, maybe that's part of my nature. I inherited that from her, and then she shaped me in that way as well. So I was very much like her. Now, of course, as in the world, but even more so then, it's, there's a kind of shaming of the feminine. Right? Anything that, you know, nobody would ever say, oh, I'm in touch with my feminine side. That, you know, that would get you laughed at, you know. And even personally, I would feel like why, you know, you're trying to be something that the world expects you to be. And especially in my case, my father wanted me to be like him. So when he came back into my life, the message I got was you need to be the opposite. I was too trusting. I was too idealistic. I was too peace loving, harmony seeking, etc. And I was very intellectual like him. You know, he was very, very smart. But he's also street smart. Right. He wasn't just I was not very street smart. I wasn't very savvy. I wasn't very cunning. You know, I couldn't negotiate with people. I, you know, I was just like too trusting. He said, you can't trust anybody. 
too idealistic. You need to be pragmatic. You're too peace-loving. You need to be rough and tough, you know, and street smart. So, so I had that sense that all of my innate qualities were defects, right? And I think we do that generally with feminine qualities. We try to, you know, suppress them in boys, especially, right? And then, of course, girls are, are sidelined, right, in society generally, historically. It's getting better now, of course, but but generally in most uh, traditional communities, the girls are educated last and the least. They're even fed last, and, you know, there's not enough food left over, then they go without it, et cetera. So there's all of that undercurrent. So I think for me, it took a long time for me to, first of all, appreciate qualities that I was born with, to recognize them as strengths and not as flaws, which is really what I was getting from my father. So I spent decades of my life trying to be the opposite of who I was, trying to manifest, you know, so for example, you know, my father bought me a gun when we went back to India. And we come from this gun-loving culture. I told him I had my own gun at the age of 11, you know, not even 12, an air gun. But it was a pretty powerful air gun. It could shoot all kinds of animals, you know from a distance. And, and I started to play with that and became a really good shot. And I just started to shoot and kill whatever moved, you know, all around me. It was, I was a terror. And somehow my father liked that, you know, he encouraged that. But at one point I just had a sudden awakening. I said, oh my God, what am I doing? I know it happened when I shot a pigeon and pigeon landed inside a drinking well, a water uh, a well where we got our drinking water in the village. And this uh, injured pigeon landed there and was bleeding into the water and then died and fell into the water. And the women who were there to you know, use the rope and thing to get water for their families were all screaming at me. And suddenly I said, why am I just killing for no reason? You know? So I decided that day to stop killing. And when I told my father that, he got mad at me. Right? He said, why would you stop killing? Like, so he was always trying to you know, get me to be that you know, kind of that heartless warrior you know, kind of thing, which just did not come naturally to me. So so it was a struggle. I think it's a struggle for a lot of us. I heard recently from Gabor Mate, we were in, in Costa Rica. And he, you, know, you know, Gabor Mate, the uh, trauma, a wonderful teacher and writer. And he said that little boys are actually more emotional and more sensitive than little girls at a young age. And that's just how they are wired. But we suppress that you know, and in families and in society, and we tell them, you, know, you need to be a man and don't cry, you know, suppress your emotions. And that is deeply, deeply unhealthy for them because emotions have to move through you. You should be able to express your emotions, but if you can't, they, they don't disappear. They get bottled up inside you and then they show up years or decades later as, as anger and violence and, and even disease, and cancers and so forth, you can really say are traceable to suppressed emotions, right? So so we don't have a very healthy relationship with gender at all. We need to respect and honor both of these. And, and a big part of my journey has been to recognize that, because like I said, for decades, I rejected who I was and tried to be the opposite. Then I kind of swung to the other pole when I did recognize that, yeah, I am more like my mother and I'm honoring my mother with my work as my coach told me, and we can talk about that. And I kind of became resolutely, explicitly trying to bring that energy into the world, which is needed. I think that's a worthy thing. But you can also go too far in that direction. We still need healthy masculine energy along with healthy feminine. That's the answer. The answer to the domination of masculine energy is not to swing to the other pole. 
and only have feminine energy in the world, that's not going to work. Right? So we need that healthy combination. And I, I think in my case, my parents kind of gave me the, the extreme examples of, of, of that spectrum. My job is to figure out how to manifest both. It's not either or. You don't have to be bipolar, right? but you can integrate those polarities and say, how can you have great personal power and charisma that my father manifested in the world with unconditional love? Because my father had power and no love. My mother had love and no power. Neither of those are healthy things. Love without power is ineffective. Power without love is tyrannical. Mm -hmm. We aspire to do good in the world and make a difference. We have to figure out how to integrate those two things. And you you really summed it up beautifully at the end there, the love and power, personal power, I, I would say. But what, what would you say very quickly are the hallmark healthy qualities of masculine energy? Like if masculine energy is being held in a way that is ideal, what are the hallmark qualities of masculine energy? And and what are the hallmark qualities of feminine energy? And and could you also deconstruct this myth that that one pole is opposite of the other or better than the other? Because I think that one of the things I've been coming to realize in my life is that polarities actually are supportive of each other. And so healthy masculine energy actually supports healthy feminine energy and, and vice versa. Like one of the insights that you have in your work is that purpose-driven companies that come from the heart, if you will, are actually more profitable yes, a lot of the time. That's right. Yeah. So could, yes. could you break down how they support each other and what the healthy qualities of each are? Sure. Yeah. So if you look at the masculine and, and Barry Johnson's work is really beautiful in this to help us understand polarities and how to actually then manage those polarities so that we get the best of both sides. So the healthy masculine has many gifts. The beautiful masculine, which is strength, courage, focus, resilience, determination, grit, structure, order. All of those things are the gifts of the masculine. On the other hand, you have the gifts of the feminine, compassion, empathy, caring, inclusiveness, gentleness, kindness, you know, love. These are the gifts of the feminine. Now, if you don't have any feminine energy in the world, if you are suppressing the feminine, right? if women are sidelined side and you don't respect and honor the feminine, then what happens in that world is that the healthy masculine becomes the uh, hyper-masculine energy, right? And so that becomes domination, aggression, hyper-competition, uh, excessive, comp you know, uh, you know, a focus on winning at all costs, and everything becomes a kind of war, right? If you look at human history, we see that, right? We see human history as one conflict after another. European nations fought 1,200 wars in 600 years with each other in the centuries leading up to 1946, right? Two wars every year on average, and since then, virtually zero. So we are moving past that, but that's really the, the, the consequences of having unfettered masculine energy. And if you look at the United States, you know, the United States was you know, conceived of in 1776, then born really as a country about a dozen years later, but the founding documents of this country do not make place for the feminine. Right? Women were not allowed to own property and were not allowed to vote until 1920. Think about it, almost 150 years. Right? There's a famous exchange of letters between Abigail Adams and John Adams as he's in the process of writing the constitution of this country. And she pleads with him, please, sir, do not forget the ladies. Right, And he kind of 
know, laughs it off and, uh, you know, madam, we fear the tyranny of the petticoat and so forth. It's really interesting to read those things. But we sideline the feminine in the world of politics and in the economy. And so we became a hyper-masculine, energy-dominated, you know, and that becomes unhealthy. When you have the absence of the other, it inevitably has to become unhealthy. So we had all the abuses in the 1800s of working conditions, of workers being treated terribly, you know, 10% of Carnegie Steel workers dying on the job, you know, when he raised their working hours and went from six, five days to six days a week and reduced their pay. And I mean, there were many examples. And hence the counter backlash of militant unions and, you know, communism and socialism and all those things arose as a response to that. So that's masculine energy run amok. And we had that in our political, you know, we're still the only major country not to have ever had elected a woman leader. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's, uh, emblematic of that, right? There was a book some years ago called America is from Mars and Europe is from Venus. You know, like men are from Mars, America, women are from Venus, that classic book. I think there's some of that exists in our, in our national psyche. We haven't overcome that yet. On the other hand, the feminine, the gifts of the feminine, as I talked about, nurturing, caring, compassion, empathy, inclusiveness, but in the absence of the healthy feminine, that becomes sentimentality, dependence, neediness, a kind of helplessness, and so forth, right? You can get uh, immobilized if you only have that feminine energy. And so you need that combination. As Martin Luther King said, we must be tough-minded and tender-hearted, right? It's both. It's not either or. Right? So we need the healthy masculine, right? And we need the healthy feminine together. And they can be present in, inside each of us. As Carl Jung said, every man has an inner woman, every woman has an inner man. You see it in the all the you know the knowledge systems of the world, the yin and yang in the Asian uh, China, you know, East Asian Chinese tradition. You know, in India we have very much that representation. It's there's a god god figure. Uh, in India, called the Ardhnareshwar, the half male, half female god. Right, so one side is Shiva, and one side is Shakti. You see the, all the beautiful masculine qualities here, and you see all the beautiful feminine qualities here. And the message is very clear: we are born with genders for reproductive and other reasons, but our journey in this lifetime is towards wholeness. And wholeness means being able to embody that. And it does happen. You know, it happens hormonally as well. Mm-hmm. Right, as testosterone decreases, men become more gentle as they age. As as women, as they age, you know, and their hormones decrease, they actually become more assertive and stronger. But we don't have to wait for the hormonal effects. We can actually have that wisdom you know, occur to us. So it really is a question of understanding and honoring both sides of the pole, not making one right and one wrong. You know, the simplest example of this, I think Barry uses, is, is breathing. You know, you can say that we human beings need oxygen. To breathe, I mean, to live. Right? Without oxygen, we don't live. And therefore, breathing in is so important. Right? So I really prefer breathing in. I'm breathing out, I have to do. But what happens if you just focus on breathing in? You end up with carbon dioxide buildup inside you. And then, of course, you release that, and then you have the relief that comes from that. But if you stay there, then you have oxygen deprivation. So there's a natural cycling between that, right? Breathing in and breathing out. And that's really what polarities are like. There's a natural cycling between those. We may have a preference or a tendency towards one, but that doesn't mean we should disregard the other, right? And we need to have a way of knowing when we are going too far. So the polarity mapping framework of Barry Johnson, you know, when we're in one side of that, then when we become excessive there and you drop below the line, 
and you start to then experience the unhealthy manifestations of too much masculine or too much feminine. So there's some kind of early warning sign about why I'm getting too aggressive or I'm getting too, you know, so I need to now bring in some of that healthy feminine. So there's an, there's an early warning sign and then there's an action step that you can take. So to sort of ground yourself back into the opposite pole and the positive side. I mean, you go too low there, then you can. So I think that is really the dance between these energies that we have to master. And then, you know, we talk about my partner, Nilima Bhatt and I co-author on the book Shakti Leadership, where we write about this in great detail. And we've now expanded that to say it's not just masculine, feminine, but there's also the elder and the child within us. Mm. The elder energy, which is the meaning, purpose, wisdom, legacy, you know, that energy that comes from the wise elder. And there's the healthy child, which is playfulness, joy, laughter, creativity. All of that comes from being connected to the healthy child energy. And ultimately, what we want to do is to manifest the healthy versions of all four. Right? The healthy elder, the healthy father, the healthy mother, and the healthy child within us. And be able to call on those things, all those four energies, as needed. And the shorthand for that, which I love, which my co-author Nilima coined, is the wise fool of tough love. And you become your own version, the wise fool of you know, the wisdom of the elder, you know, the foolishness, the lightheartedness, the lightness of being of the child, right? And you've got the toughness of the strong father and the love of the, of the unconditional love of the mother. How can we stay? And that's staying above the line on all four. Right? It is very possible to be below the line on any or all of them. Right? You can have sort of the unhealthy elder energy, which is dogmatism, superstition. Right, fear of change, etc. You can have the unhealthy child energy, which is kind of the adolescent, self-indulgent, impatient, selfish, and of course you can have the healthy, unhealthy masculine, unhealthy feminine. And I think that's what we have to strive to to be manifest all four of those you know, positive energies within us. Well, I, I wrote down the wise fool of tough love. I, as you could tell by my laughter, that one resonated with me. Everything yeah. resonates a lot with me. And I, I want to help you keep rolling here. So one one thing I'm curious about is how you have done your own healing work towards wholeness and integration of all of these qualities. Like what what has been supportive in your own personal journey to become closer to the wise fool of tough love in any given moment. Yeah. So, you know, this, I would say, is a really relatively recent chapter in my life. You know, a lot of this healing work, a lot of this growth is probably in the last five to 10 years. You know, I discovered my purpose. You know, the subtitle of my book is The Path to Purpose, Inner Peace and Healing. That's the sequence in which it happened for me. I discovered my purpose, which is a very important element, of course, in Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning. It's, it's all about that. That happened to me or for me around 2005 when I wrote the book Films of Endearment. And even before it was published, I felt my purpose found me because I, I, I discovered a way of being that resonated with my core. And I was literally in tears as I was writing some of the stories of these companies that are loved by everybody. After 20 years of being in a world of business and as a professor of, of marketing and strategy, being part of a world that I felt very dehumanizing to me, very exploitative in many ways. It was all about making money, but no focus on well-being and happiness and you know, society and none of those elements were ever talked about in my business education and, uh, and all the literature that existed. 
at the time. And then I discovered this, this other way of being, right, which was rooted in love and care and meaning and purpose and, and the well-being of everybody uh, at the same time. And that really resonated with me at a deep level. And I kind of discovered my purpose there. Right? So I find I had been following my heartbreak, as Andrew Harvey talks about until then. Things that I noticed that none of my doctoral student colleagues or my faculty colleagues, once I started teaching, none of them cared about those things. Very few of them did. But I really cared about them. The way we're using women's bodies to sell products, for example, what that does to young women, eating disorders and body dysmorphia and depression and a host of other things, the children and elders, many other, just even you know, regular people when we spend so much on marketing, which was my field, you know. And so I found that, that my purpose kind of found me. I, I went from the heartbreak to the bliss. I saw the other side, that heartbreak, right? As Joseph Campbell says, follow your bliss. And Andrew Harvey says, follow your heartbreak. And, and in those within, between those two, somewhere is your purpose. What breaks your heart, what brings you joy? You know, that's, that was. So I discovered that, but there was still a lot more that I needed to do from a healing side. I had meaning and purpose in my life, but I did not have peace. And and I had all these wounds that I had never even acknowledged, let alone healed. And so that journey has been over the last 10, 15 years, especially in the last five years, the need for healing. When I was writing The Healing Organization, a book that came out in 2019, but I really was doing the research in 2017. And then in 18, I was getting ready to write. That's the year I turned 60. And I was gathering the stories and doing the background work and so forth. And, and I, I carved out the entire summer of 2018, a series of writing retreats. I like to block out like one or two weeks at a time, go somewhere in the mountains or somewhere and they just, you know, work day and night. That's how I've done most of my books. Four women asked me the same question. They said, Raj, you're writing a book about healing. What about your own healing? And I initially said, well, I don't have time for that. I've got a book deadline in October, you know, so I need to just focus. They said, no, you need to make time for that. I said, well, I think I'm okay. He said, no, we know you and everybody needs healing. And especially you, and you really cannot write a book about healing unless you have focused on your own healing. I mean, that just would not be, you know, almost ethically right, right? To talk about something, but not actually try to look within and apply it. And so fortunately, I had the good sense to listen to them. Lynn Twist was one of them, and Nilima, my co-author, was another, and my coach, and then somebody else I worked with who had guided me on some plant journeys. And so then I, I listened to them. I delayed that book by five months, and I said yes to a number of experiences that I had already turned down, including going to the high Himalayas, the border between India and Tibet, in a region called Ladakh, which is the seat of deep Buddhist wisdom. You know, Tibetan Buddhism and that the Indian version of that comes from that region. And that's where I have my 60th birthday on a Shakti spiritual journey that we organized with Shakti leadership groups. And that was very profound. And then I uh, went to a silent retreat for several days with uh, 35 people in upstate New York at a place called Peace Village. And that was a profound experience. And in that silence, I received so many downloads, so much wisdom came flowing through me that I had 45 pages of notes by the end of that. And I said, oh my God, I need to write another book. And I kind of had the framing for this book that started to come to me. And then I worked with a coach for the first time and that was profound for me, the insights that she had for me. And then I went to the Amazon rainforest with Lynn Twist on the Pachamama Alliance. And Lynn had called me the day after I, I interviewed her for my book. And she said, Raj, I had a dream last night and you were in it. And the message was very clear that you need to come on this trip. 
that you will learn more about healing in 10 days, being immersed in the rainforest with the indigenous people there, the Achwara and the Sapana, you will learn far more about healing than any amount of academic research that we could do. So, so those all became major steps in my healing journey. And that continued into 2019. You know, that's when I realized some of the traumas that had been buried inside my psyche and in my family history that I write about. Uh, it also soon was followed by both of my parents dying. You know, that is its own kind of a growth experience. So, so yeah, it's been quite an intense uh, few years of uh, rapid and deep learning and growth for me. Could you talk about the healing circle? that you organized with your family and some of the events that precipitated that, that you you felt it was important enough to, not only for your family, but for Kasur, where you're from, the, the little village in India that you grew up in. It was really moving. And uh, I think there's another through line that I want to explore about this afterwards, but let's just start with the healing circle that you organized. What precipitated it? What were some of the events that you wanted to unearth, uncover with your family? And what's become possible in your family, your personal life, however you'd want to describe it, even maybe a bigger collective, as a result of the healing? Because in my estimation, a lot of us look at healing as, I don't know, only something to do if we're wounded more than another person. But I think that all of us need to do our own healing work and that there's so much that's possible on the other side. It's that bliss that you're speaking about. But I'll, I'll let you take it from here and, and talk about the healing circle. Sure. Well, the, the healing circle is something I write about in the epilogue of the book. It's the very last section of the book. Because a few chapters earlier, I had uncovered certain deep traumas that had existed in my family. Um, and even before that, I had uncovered or my own traumas, You know, some of which I was aware of and others I had erased. And so I realized that there's trauma at four levels. There's, there's personal trauma, things that happen directly to you, right? Or as Gabor Mate would say, things that happen that should not have happened and things that did not happen that should have happened, right? And both can be traumatic, right? So I discovered, or I knew about some of them, and I discovered a deeper level of personal trauma that I had experienced and not had healed from. And then there's family trauma, things that happened within the family system that I was not alive for when that, when that incident happened, the traumatic incident. But I've lived in the shadow of that my entire life. And the energy system that I was part of was really deeply, deeply wounded and impacted by that traumatic event 75 years ago. And then there's a third kind of trauma, which is ancestral trauma. Um, uh, things that happened multi-generations ago we are now, and this is very new research that is still unfolding, that through the field of epigenetics, we are discovering that certain genes get expressed in some people in different ways, depending on their lineage. Right? So they may have certain exaggerated fears of certain things or sensitivity to certain things because of things that happened four, five, six generations ago, that the genes are being expressed in a different way. So in a way, your lineage, the trauma that people experienced in the past is still sitting inside you unacknowledged and unhealed for the most part. And then there's the collective trauma. What we have all experienced, you know, climate change is kind of a shared collective trauma. The pandemic was a deeply traumatic event, more for some people than others, but overall at a planetary level, um, you know, even Ukraine. I mean, there are many traumatic things that happen in the world. So there's trauma of all kinds. And I came to recognize that we are all in some state of post-traumatic stress injury 
PTSI, maybe not PTSD, maybe we don't have a diagnosed disorder. Maybe that that diagnosis is is reserved for people with, you know, front uh, first responders or people who were sent away to battle in war and things that we can't imagine. But the fact is that trauma is universal. It's part of the human condition. It has happened for every one of us, I believe. Just routinely growing up is, is hard and the traumatic events that happen in every child's life. And then there are other things that happen to, uh, to people that are more intense than that. So there was all this trauma and I was aware of some of it. But the two biggest pieces were unfolded to me in 2019 when I was on a walk with my cousin. And uh, he told me two things that really shook me in that walk, you know. So, you know, I had this difficult history with my father. I didn't know him until I was seven, as I mentioned earlier. And then I never got close to him after that, uh, partly because we missed those seven bonding years, which I can't imagine missing that with my children, right? Like you barely know that you don't get close. Uh, but then also, I, you know, I never felt worthy of him. I was always trying to impress him. He never approved of me. He never expressed any of those things. So I had a difficult time, but then I left home before I was 16 and you know, I only periodically saw him after that. But when it came time for me to get married, you know, it became a big issue between him and me because he wanted me to go through the arranged process and somebody that he would approve of. And I met somebody that I wanted to marry and he completely put his foot down and said no. And, you know, I said, well, it's my life. I'm going to do it. But then he came to Boston and spent several months trying to do everything possible to, to, you know, break us up and get me to change. Nothing worked. He said, I've I curse your marriage if you marry this person, you know, uh, forget about blessing you, I'm going to curse you. Whether you believe it or not, you know, those words have power. And then finally, when nothing worked, he threatened to kill himself. He literally cut himself with a knife one, one night after having multiple drinks. And I don't know whether he did it in a calculating way that he thought he was trying to pull out all the stops to get me to do, but I, I essentially almost fainted in that moment. I remember everything just going black and I just collapsed to the floor because I could see all the blood, you know, and it was very traumatic. So that was a traumatic imprint. And then I gave in in that moment. And then, you know, he left. My, my, my mom was there too, but this was all his doing really. And then uh, over the next few weeks, I slowly came back to my senses and I said, I cannot let him dictate my life. You know, this is my life, even if it's a mistake. It's, he cannot, if I give in to him on this, I will never be my own person. It's a matter of self-respect. You know, it became that. It became about him and me. The person I was marrying almost became a, you know, incidental in that in that battle. You know, if you will. And so, so I, then I, when I came to that realization, I said, "No, this is my life, my choice." I went to India and I, I went to tell him personally that I will, in fact, marry you. This is my life. And he blew up all over again. And this time, he went into the other room and he, he came back with a gun. Right? And he pointed that gun at me and said some version of, I would rather not have a son than a son like you. Right? And my cousins and others were there and they, they came between us and took me away from there. But now this was a deeply trauma, you can imagine, the level of trauma of that kind of an event. It was so traumatic that I experienced what is called disassociative amnesia, where you're Psyche, in order to protect you, erases certain painful memories because they're too hard for you to live with. So it just erases that. 
Right? Now, I wouldn't have believed that's possible unless in 2019, I went on that walk with my cousin and I asked him what happened that day. Tell me how and what happened in the aftermath. He said, yeah, this is what happened. This is what he said. This is the gun he brought. This is what, you know, there are multiple people who were there who confirmed these details. And I had no memory of it. Now, the fact that I don't have a conscious memory of it doesn't mean that it's gone from my, right? The book, like the book says, the body keeps the score. It's all embedded in me, right? So that trauma is something I've been living with and carrying around. And then he told me on that same walk about a second, I said, what is this curse that Papa, I call my father, Papa. My father used to talk about this curse. He said, our family, people say that there's a curse on our family, that uh, there were two souls that died an unnatural death and they never found peace and therefore our family has been cursed. That's what people say. And he would just say that, right? And in a way, trying to make sense of all of the suffering that has happened in our family. You know, there were suicides, there were children dying young, there were murders, there were, I mean, just enormous amount of suffering, inordinate amount of suffering and pain in the family. And I asked my cousin, you know, what is this curse? Do you know anything about this curse? He said, yeah, I know what that is. Really, what is it? He said, you know, we had, our grandfather had 13 children. I only know about six of them. Right? He said six of them died when they were young. Right? In those days, infant mortality, child mortality was very high. Right? That's kind of par for the course. So six died and six survived. But there was a 13th one. And he said, we had another aunt. And she was the second oldest of all of them. And, and that she became pregnant or she was raped, we believe, by the priests in the village was kind of a trusted spiritual advisor to the family. And this happened, she was probably like 16 years old and she became pregnant. And around the time that her older brother was getting married, she started to show signs of her pregnancy and people started gossiping. And that's how my grandfather found out about it. Because he hardly ever saw his daughters and they always stayed in the inside part of the house. And to him, this was going to completely bring shame and dishonor on the family, everything that he had worked hard to create and build up for this family and all the respect and prestige in the world or whatever, the way he saw it, it's going to destroy to have you know this happen and for people to know about it. And the story goes that he told his oldest son that you need to take care of this problem, right? Because you're the oldest and this is your duty. And so, so essentially his oldest son had to figure out a way to essentially get rid of his own sister. And the details are different of what I've heard and they're in the book, but I don't have to go there. But basically she was killed and her child died. I mean, she was almost nine months pregnant at that time, eight and a half months. So the baby was born, the baby was crying, you know, and they somehow in that one night, both of them were erased. And, and the next day, it was like she never existed. Nobody's ever supposed to talk about her, you know. And that was that. And now this uncle, who was apparently a very gentle, loving soul, from what I've been told, started exhibiting signs of madness. He started having these outbursts and screaming and shouting at people and being out of control. And then he would calm down again. And then slowly over the period of the next few years, those outbursts became more and more frequent. Ultimately, he was completely, fully mad, you know, ranting and raving and screaming and lashing out day and night. 
to the point where he was locked up in a room in that house for the rest of his life. You know, he lived another 20 years or so. And that was the background soundtrack. So when I came off awareness, you know, growing up there, all I heard was he was known as Kumarsa, which is kind of like the heir apparent to my grandfather for that feudal title that he had, we had. He was ranting and raving. You could hear him from a mile away, and there was that room in the corner. And you know, once in a while, he would come down, and you could see him, and they would give him food. And but he was usually naked and chained to a post, you know, and ranting and raving day and night. So this was kind of the the the, the episode or incident that I learned about in 2019. And I said, Oh my God, so much makes sense now. That here's this family that has been living with this dark secret. You know, this collective, this trauma that inflicted was, that impacted all of us, everybody in this family. And my father and others were all witnesses to this atrocity, but they were not allowed to talk about it. Certainly there was no concept of therapy or anything that we would have access to today, right? So he was sworn to silence for the rest of his life, bottled that up, right? And it's kind of a loss of innocence. You know, he was apparently a very idealistic young man, very intelligent, very, and and you know, he kind of his inter, his innocence was taken from him that day. And so he carried around that trauma for the rest of his life, and I believe that explains why he had to drink heavily every day. He had to uh, take sleeping pills, you know, to get some peace, some joy. You know, the only time I saw him smile or be happy was after a few drinks. And then once that wore off, he needed the sleeping pills to be able to fall asleep at night, you know. So he was a deeply troubled person with never any peace of mind. So this was kind of the backdrop. And when I learned about this, I said, you know, I two things. So one, I can't write about this in the book unless I take it all the way to healing. You know, I can't just put it in as a salacious, gossipy kind of, oh my God, shocking detail, you know. You know, we, about trauma, we say you have to reveal it and feel it in order to heal it. But you have to try to get to healing. So I said, how can we get to healing? And my friend Nilima and others guided me on that. The idea of the healing circle, that we have to, first of all, bring this into the open. Right? What do most people do with trauma, like my father did? We conceal it. We hide it. We are ashamed of it. Right? And that shame grows in that darkness. We conceal it and then we numb it. We numb it with drugs and alcohol most commonly or other escape mechanisms. Some people might run or whatever, but there are still escape mechanisms. We're not actually addressing it. So we conceal it, we numb it, and then we relive it constantly. It's never gone. And the other pathway is you reveal it and feel it and grieve it in order to start to heal it. And there are other things available today, many modalities like psychedelics and MDMA that people are being able to use to, to heal trauma. So I said, we need to acknowledge this at a fam for the whole family. Now, I, many people in my family were against that. You know, my brother and others said, no, you can't talk about this. You certainly cannot write about this. You know, what are people going to think about our family? That people are going to laugh at us, you know, or that people will not want their children to marry our children because we'll be tainted by this history. And I said, well, I don't think that's true. And secondly, I cannot be part of the conspiracy of silence anymore. This thing has been buried for 75 years. We've seen all the trauma. I want to honor the memory of my aunt. You know, she was the victim here. By the way, nothing happened to that priest. Okay? He suffered no consequences. She lost her life. She was killed. Her memory was erased. I asked around. I tried to find out what was her name. 
you know, what was she like? There are only a few survivors still. There are two siblings that are left, you know. And, and I said, I want to do, I said, I want the entire family to come together. And first of all, some of the, and my cousins, my other cousin said, well, we can't, we should not include the young people. You know, they should not be part of that. I said, no, they need to be part of this. This is their lineage as well. None of us are guilty of this crime, but we are all part of the system within which this happened, right? And we all have some collective responsibility here because we're the only ones who can try to do something today to heal. You know, I think in the present moment, you can heal the present, but you can also heal the past in the present moment, right? That whole truth and reconciliation idea that South Africa showed us, right? At the end of apartheid, without truth, there's no reconciliation. There's no harmony. There's no peace. First, the truth has to be acknowledged. So I said, we're going to talk about what happened. To the best of my knowledge, from what I've been able to piece together, this is what I know. And I asked other people in the room what they heard. So we got that the details of what we think might have happened that night. And we talked about, you know, what else do we know about this? And then how can we collectively as a family now express our remorse, our, our grief, regret that this happened? I especially wanted the women to speak. Because again, I come from that tradition which still exists where the women are sort of sidelined and you know they don't speak, right? They kind of some of them keep their head covered. And I had a microphone, I passed around. I said, I want to hear everybody's voice. And what do you think about this? And what should we do going forward? I wanted the young men, especially in the family, to have a different reverence for the feminine, because this was the extinguishing of the feminine within our family. This was a crime against the feminine, right? Literally, the woman and her baby were killed for no fault of their own, but because of the abuses of the masculine, the patriarchal system that we were in. And so we had that process that evening. And the other part of it, I said, you know, we need to connect back, if you talk about the ancestral piece of this. We are born, you know, the caste system, and I don't approve of the caste system, and I think it has caused so much suffering for people in the lower caste who are considered untouchable. I mean, it's one of the saddest things about the Indian the heritage that we are, you know, system that we were part of. But I said, if we do, in fact, buy into this notion that we are from the warrior community, the warrior caste, the Rajputs, well, what is our dharma as Rajputs? Dharma is kind of the sacred duty that we are here to perform, right? What we are supposed to live into. Yeah, if you're born into this privileged position, and we had all this land and these titles and all this respect that people gave us, unearned in a way, right? Just born into that. I said, what is our, our sacred duty? Well, as warriors, what is our role? We are the ones who are supposed to sacrifice ourselves to protect the people. That's the history, right? Because India has been invaded 200 times in its history, more than any other country on the planet. And the invasions always came from the Northwest from the Middle East, from you know, you know, Arabia and other countries, Afghanistan, Greece, etc. And my ancestors were at the forefront of those battles because I come from that state of Rajasthan, which is on the Northwest frontier. These were the warriors there, right? So they went into, time and again, went into these battles facing certain death against much larger armies, right? But they had to do it. And their wives and children often committed mass suicide because they didn't want to be enslaved and tortured and so forth. So there's all that traumatic history in our lineage, right? 
But core to it is our fundamental duty. I said, so we need to connect to our dharma. And I went around the room and said, what should we commit to as the family of NK Sur? We have got this village, we have all these people, right, who are in much weaker positions than we are. What has happened in the last few generations is that we have become the abusers. Instead of the protectors and the defenders, I saw it growing up. My grandfather, my uncles, my cousins, they would all use their power to abuse the workers, abuse the people physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, in every possible way. Right? We became the tormentors and the abusers of the people. You know, we can disconnect it from our sacred duty. I said, we must recommit to becoming the protectors and defenders and servants in a way of the people there. Right, so that people can look to us for help, right? That we can actually help make their lives better rather than use them to make more money and wealth for ourselves. And so we went around the room to get people to commit to that. One of my cousins was running for election in some local, you know, election there in the village. And I said, Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to get elected into this this role? Do you view it as a sacred responsibility to help the people? Are you just going to use it to try to make more money? Which is what a lot of politicians do in India and many places, right? They get bribed to make to you know do certain things for certain people, and that's why many people spend money to become elected. So you know we had that kind of a conversation, and and you know a lot of people committed to say, yeah, as a family, we need to come back together with each other, and we need to support each other, and we need to support ours our community and the people around us and, and so forth. So, so I think it became a really uh, pivotal moment, I think, in our history. There was no conversation like this had ever happened before. So I think people will remember this, and I recorded all of it. And then the next day, we did a religious ceremony as well, where we had the priest, and we actually had an altar at which we had a, a representation of my aunt and her baby and my parents and grandparents and everybody. And there's kind of a... It's a it's a ceremony to uh, you know for the lineage you know for our ancestors for people right? and we finally honored those two souls who had never received any of that kind of honoring in any ceremony right and if you are a believing Hindu then you believe that if you don't do that then those souls will not find peace so so we did all those things and so I think you know it then made it okay to talk about this because we have now tried to heal from it learn from it, grow from it, commit to being about our higher selves, right, rather than give in to those, those basic things. And, and I think our story is not unique, maybe a little more extreme, but there are probably many families like that, especially in that feudal culture that we come from, the Rajputs, who would recognize a version. My cousin said, yeah, this kind of stuff used to happen all the time, that many daughters and daughters-in-law, you know, of these families, were literally killed right in the house and disappeared over whatever reasons, over the you know centuries. But that would happen. And so maybe this inspires other people to also try to find healing. First of all, to bring the truth into the room and then find healing. Some kind of, like we had the Me Too over here, you know, some kind of a We Too. Yeah, We Too. We, our family also had this darkness in it, you know. There's tremendous amount of that all over the world. So that really was the intent of including those things. My own personal trauma with me and my father and the family trauma. So we can actually now start to heal from those once you acknowledge it. The first step, as James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So this is sort of step one and two in that journey, facing it, 
now starting to try to move towards some kind of reconciliation. And I believe a lot of that happened that day for us. Well, it's such a powerful story. And I, I have a really big question, a really big follow-up question for you, Raj, because globally, we are built on a lot of the same challenges that your family was built on. Patriarchy, there's lots of extraction, what you would call unconscious capitalism. America is built on slavery, colonialism. There's just so much collective trauma and personal trauma, but there's really, it's inescapable. And so the, the big question that I have behind this is that if you were to orchestrate a global healing circle, what would that look like? Yeah, I think that's a very profound question. And I agree with you that this is universal to the human condition. Almost everybody can trace back to either being on the side of the, 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 the traumatized or the people inflicting the trauma. And I think when you inflict trauma on another, that is its own trauma, right? The slave owner who whipped their slaves, they're also damaging their psyche in some deep way. And so I think the, the coming together and recognizing, there's a beautiful quote from a, a, an actor named Mekad Brooks, I think, African-American actor. He was on a podcast I heard. And, and he said to the, the host of the podcast, that your ancestors will never, or you will never understand the ancestral trauma that I carry, okay? And I may never understand the ancestral guilt that you carry, but our ancestors would sure love it if we could now heal together, right? By acknowledging, first of all. You know, I had a friend uh, from Trinidad who just went to Guyana and visited the, uh, the slave castles, I think they were called where the slave trade was really organized, right? People, slaves were captured and from there they were shipped out to the West. And he just had this profound connection with the trauma that sits in his lineage. He had grown up kind of in denial, right? As, as, a, as a black child, a Nigerian father and then a mother who came, I think from, from Africa, from the other side of Africa. And all through, he was like, oh, we're just like everybody else. And he grew up in a middle-class family and well-educated, went to Harvard and went to Wharton and worked at McKinsey and is a CEO of a big company. And his children said to him, dad, you never talked to us about race. You know, we never, because yeah, they were trying to pretend like it wasn't there, right? It's not an issue. We're fine. We're succeeding. We're thriving here. And this was really after reading my book. And, he, and then he had that experience there. And now he really wants to look at this head on. And is coming now to, you know, understand his own deep trauma that has been buried. And he himself then said, yeah, I've experienced being treated or thought of as less than, even as a student in school, even when I was working. But he had, again, chosen not to see those things or to discount them, you know, pretend like they didn't happen. So I think, again, it's about the truth. And this was a big theme in my book, as you read, you know, the the, the final lessons that I got from that ayahuasca experience, truth was the, the last piece of it. Right? We have to face the truth, bring the truth in the room. So I do believe we need that. As you said, in this country, in the United States, we have done an especially poor job of healing the past because we have kind of said, okay, we, we had the war and we did the thing, we passed the laws and now we move on, right? And all that is in the past and Nothing can be done or nothing needs to be done about it. Well, the fact is that we have never fully acknowledged 
the real suffering at a heart level, you know, maybe we pass some laws and then for a hundred years again, things were bad, right? But uh, I don't think we've done that either for the slavery issue or the native population or, or some other things as well in our history. I think that's something that's part of the maturing of our national psyche that is needed. You know, there was this phrase that being American means never having to say you're sorry, right? And in a way, that is not American to go out and apologize to anybody in the world for anything that we ever did. You know, I remember when Obama went to Japan and he expressed some regret, not even an apology, the regret that the other atomic bomb had to be dropped here. And we could argue all of that pros and cons. But even that, was, oh my God, how can you apologize for America? You know, so I think that is that is something that we need to change. And so I think that healing circle needs to bring together both sides, the people who were predominantly on the side of the you know, the traumatized and those who did that. And we cannot heal in isolation from each other. You know, the traumatized can't heal without the presence of the of their tormentors. And this is where I think you know, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela gave us that beautiful blueprint, truth and reconciliation. You know, let's have those conversations at every level. You know, let's acknowledge, let's heal together because we can't heal without each other. Not really. So I think there's there's a huge need for that and, and a huge opportunity. I haven't thought about what that global conversation would look like, but I think that's that is something to aspire to do. My my partner, my co-author, Nilima Pat, does do truth and reconciliation. In fact, it's going on right now. There's an online truth and reconciliation two-week process that she's doing, and a number of different speakers are talking to different aspects of that. So yeah, that's that's certainly something that is needed. Mm-hmm. It seems, I mean, one of the things I'm hearing in your answer, and and if you were to ask me, it's a gigantic question and there isn't really, I don't know if there's a, a right answer per se, but one of the things I'm hearing in your response that feels true to me is that there's, it's multifaceted. There's lots of layers. So there's, we could do our own individual healing around what has happened directly to us. There's the the collective of if, you know, I'm, I'm white. And if, if I was in a healing circle with someone who is a black, who is black or is a person of color, there would be a, hopefully a skillful facilitator there who could help guide us on some sort of journey inwards where we are able to make a repair and in, in your example, not ignore the fact that race is a, a challenge that's present right now. When we ignore it, we are doing more damage. It, it's probably well intended by a lot of people, but we do more damage. And, and so I think that that's what you're pointing to in, in the answer is that there needs to be multiple levels of this. It's not a sit down of let's bring 9 billion people together and, and talk about this. There's the, your own healing work that you might do with a therapist or a coach. There's your familial inner work that you could do, which is what you did in your healing circle. And then you might do race, class, gender, there, there's gender. Gender, gender as well. Yeah, we do these gender reconciliation circles coming out of our Shakti leadership work, you know, where we actually put men and women together. And we start by putting the women in the inner circle and the men in the outer circle, right? So everybody's facing a fire in the middle. And then there's a talking stick. And first, the women speak and they speak to a number of different questions that we ask them about their fears, about their hopes, about their dreams, about you know all kinds of deep things what it feels like to be a woman in this world. 
right? What are some of the things that are unique to women, especially in terms of physical safety, for example, but also in terms of being treated with respect and as an equal and so forth. And the men are there to bear witness, right? Not to respond, not to speak, but just to listen deeply at a deep level, not just for the words, but the emotions and the, the pain and the values underlying those words, right? And then we change it and the men are in the, in the inner circle and the women are then bearing witness. And yeah, being a man is no picnic either in this world. And there's all kinds of challenges, right, that, that are faced. Uh, there's in, in many ways a crisis for men too right now in this uh, in the world, especially young boys, but even for men. And so that becomes a very healing process because each of us kind of represents the archetype. Yeah, we're not just telling our individual story. We're speaking on behalf of our collective, you know, the feminine or the masculine. And the other needs to hear that, right? And then respond to it and adjust you know, based upon that and shift certain ways of being and certain ways of thinking from that. And I think some version of that, uh, we haven't done it with races, but I think that would be a, a powerful thing to do. And I'm going to take that as a as an idea, you know, and I'm going to talk about it, it with Nilimhan because because my friend in Trinidad is asking how should he what should he do with this, you know, this this state that he's in right now. He's opened up and he's feeling he's he's now seeing things that he didn't see before. He's talking about doing a TED talk maybe about this and you know, oh that's fine, but you know what what is the bigger healing opportunity that has opened up from this? You know, how do we how do we do that? So. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I, I feel really inspired by much of this conversation so far, Raj. And there's a couple of things I, I want to make sure we hit on before we wrap up here. And one is just around the place of healing in business. I mean, that's the, you are doing the intersection of healing and business. That That's an instrumental part of your purpose with conscious capitalism. And so a lot of what we were talking about so far today, to me, it's imperative for businesses to be looking at this work too. And so what? how do you look at the intersection of healing and business? And yeah, I guess if you, if you could just talk a little bit about the idea of conscious capitalism as well. Sure. Well, I wrote a book called The Healing Organization uh, in 2019 which was kind of the evolution in my mind of, of, of the philosophy of conscious capitalism, which was rooted for me in a book I wrote called Firms of Endearment that I mentioned earlier, that that's how I discovered my purpose, right? Companies that are loved by everybody and what makes that happen is that they practice these four principles, that they have a reason for being a purpose that goes beyond profit and they have some core values that are germane to them, that they care about the well-being of Everybody whose life is impacted by that business, the employees, their children, communities, customers, suppliers, investors, everybody, right? That everybody's well-being matters as an end in itself, not just as a way to make more money for the owner of the business, but as an end in itself. Everybody connected to the business matters and everybody should thrive. Third is conscious leadership, which is about leaders who are primarily motivated by service to the people and to the purpose of the organization and not driven by their ego and by, uh, you know, hunger for money and power. And so conscious leaders are ele elevated in that sense that they are operating, you know, with, with, with that as their primary uh, drive. And then the culture of these companies, where most traditional cultures have a lot of fear and stress in them. You know, we kind of use this metaphor of carrots and sticks to get people to do things or behave, right? 
Now, as we say, what animal belongs between a carrot and a stick? It's not a human, it's a donkey. And that's where that metaphor comes from. But we treat people like that. And as a result, we create tremendous stress, tremendous fear, tremendous burnout. You know, my partner is finishing, publishing a book on burnout in the next two months, uh, which is epidemic levels in the world. Uh, tremendous suffering. Heart attacks are 20% higher on Mondays. 4 a.m. Monday morning is the peak of heart attacks. 120,000 Americans die from stress connected to work. 600,000 Chinese die every year from too much work. Right? I mean, the human cost of doing business is extraordinary. And conscious companies have cultures that are caring, that respect and honor the people that are in them. There's trusting, there's transparency, integrity, all kinds of empowerment and so forth. So those are the four pillars that we discovered. They define what it means to be a conscious business or a firm of endearment. And we found that those companies actually are more successful financially in the long run, even though that's not their primary motivation. They're doing it because this is the right thing to do. They're not saying, well, we treat people better, they're happier, they'll be more productive and more creative, which is all true. But that's not why you do it. You do it because it's the right thing to do. That's what we as humans are called on to do. You know, We're here to take care of each other and serve each other. And so my research found that those companies are dramatically more successful, not just a little bit. And at the same time, they're having many other positive effects on people, right? Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, ecologically, all kinds of positive impacts in addition to financially. So that kind of became a compelling story of rethinking everything I had been taught in my business, MBA and PhD, you know, which is rooted in this narrow view of human beings, homo economicus. We are selfish, material, individual, you know, short-term value maximizers. You know, like, what's in it for me and how can I get as much of it as possible? As opposed to we are altruistic, we are loving, we are collect, you know, caring, and we have all these other quality dimensions to ourselves. But the whole world of economics and capitalism has been built on that one pillar alone. And actually goes back to that's masculine energy, right? That is saying I'm in it for, you know, and I win and everybody else has to lose if I do that we left out the other side of what it means to be a human being. In fact, Adam Smith, who wrote Wealth of Nations, which is about self-interest and you know, pursuing and freedom, and you know, in a way, he also wrote the, the theory of moral sentiments about the human need to care, which came 17 years before the Wealth of Nations. And the way I say it is that capitalism had a mother and a father, and they were both Adam Smith. The father energy was in Wealth of Nations, the mother energy was in moral sentiments. But what do we do in life, as I did for many decades? You take your mother for granted. And you run after what your father is out there conquering in the world. And we think that's what it's all about, right? So we ignored that feminine side, the caring side. So we build business and capitalism on one pillar. We left out the caring and we left out the hunger for purpose, right? Beyond self-interest, which Victor Frankl writes so beautifully about. And so we're trying to create a three-dimensional you know, not just one pillar, but three pillars on which business should rest. Caring, self-interest, and purpose. So that became conscious capitalism and became a movement starting in 2008. We wrote the book Conscious Capitalism in 2013. It's become a global movement. Uh, we have chapters in many countries and about 35 U.S. cities. And, you know, it's part of the conversation now. And, you know, there are others also talking about this in their own language. And so that journey for me that started in 2005 with, when I wrote Firms of Endearment came out in 2007 has continued over the years. <clears throat> I started exploring some of the other dimensions like Shakti leadership was about the feminine. 
And my recognition that these companies have a lot more feminine energy in them. And there's a rise of feminine values in the culture generally. We're moving away from war. We're moving away from violence, you know, etc. So that was Shakti. And then there's a book called Everybody Matters, which is about democratizing this to every kind of business, right? Small companies, manufacturing companies, etc. When you put people at the center, treat them with respect and care and dignity so that everybody matters and everybody wins. That's ultimately, that's the story of one company that has done that beautifully. And then ultimately, I came to this realization that business is ultimately about reducing suffering and bringing more joy into the world, if you do it right. But if you do it with the old mindset, it actually increases suffering and takes away joy. Okay, the traditional businesses, which are just about profit maximization, they come in and they you know, fire a bunch of people and put everybody else on these aggressive targets and you're running faster just to stay in place and you're burning out and you're stressed out and you're increasing earnings per share by a penny or two. And that's just like, causing suffering and you end up selling more than you need to to customers who don't need it and you charge them whatever they you can and you end up causing ill you know bad health for your customers and stress and burnout for your employees and damage the environment and destroy the communities and you know you made your money. And I say, well that's not real profit. You know, that's like a parasite. You're just sucking value. And you're sucking life force out of people and out of the planet. Right, in order to make money. And so that's not so. I said the same business can be done. Right? Same product, same customers, same employees. You can do it in a way that causes suffering, or you can do it in a way that reduces suffering and elevates joy. And so the idea of the healing organization came out of that that if you do it in the right way, you can actually, if you meet somebody's need with genuine care, I understand your needs and I meet those needs with genuine care for you. Not just because I see how many dollars you can give me. That's a healing act. But if I really look at you as a way to fulfill my needs of making more money, then I'm going to do whatever it takes to get separate you from your money, right? And I'll do that in the employees, etc. So that becomes suffering. So that was the idea that business, in fact, the way we traditionally we practice it causes enormous suffering in the world. There's so much suffering out there. You know, we've raised living standards, true, but if you look at burnout, you look at stress, anxiety, depression, drug addiction, suicides, these are all going up rapidly all over the world, especially developed countries. If you look at the amount of suffering that we have out there on the planetary level, we're living through the fifth mass extinction, first one after 65 million years now, caused primarily by human activity. Right? Half the species are going to disappear in the next few decades. If you look at the amount of suffering that we are creating with factory farmed animals, mm. something like, I don't know, 70 billion animals are kept in these cages and horrific conditions, and then they are killed in order to feed our appetites. That's an enormous, enormous, unimaginable amount of suffering that's going on every day. We don't see it, right? We just see the nicely packaged product in the supermarket or in the restaurant. But there's enormous suffering out there that is being conducted or inflicted on our behalf, right? And I believe all suffering matters. It doesn't disappear when that animal dies. You know, and there's some karmic accounting somewhere of all the suffering that we are directly or indirectly causing in the world. And so to me, the paramount I say we need to heal ourselves, our families, our communities, our companies, our countries, our planet. And we need to heal the past. 
in the present and the future. So the need for healing is paramount. And, and we all need to be healers. It doesn't matter if you're a professor or a CEO or an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. You can think of yourself as, as a healer. Am I a healer? Am I reducing suffering and bringing more joy? And that book then looks at 25 companies that are actually healing their employees. They are places of healing for their people who work there. They are sources of healing for their customers and their communities. And they are a force for healing in the world. And that's what we can do and we can aspire to. And there's this very practical and inspirational stories of 25 companies that are doing that. So I think the workplace can become the place of deepest spiritual growth. Mm. And we can heal at scale. See, in our normal life, I can only take care of a few people and have a positive impact on, on a handful of others. Right? But if you start a company, you can multiply that. I think business is a way to scale caring and healing. But you have to start out with the healing business. So again, this is not saying we need more yoga, stay in our massage and you know, wellness retreat centers. This is not about saying we need more healing businesses. This is saying we need to treat business itself as a healing activity. Right? Doing the right things for the right reasons with the right energy, then that will heal. You do those same things in a different way, that will hurt. So that's the idea of that. I think, as I said, business, you know, my friend John Mackey, who's the CEO of Whole Foods or the founder of Whole Foods, and we wrote that book together. We started this movement together. He said, Whole Foods is my ashram. Mm. That is where I do my deepest spiritual work. That's how it should be. You know, work is, as Khalil Gibran said, work is love made visible. If you do it right. But if you don't, the work is then torture uh, made visible, right? We, we create these horrific work conditions and people burn out and stress out. And most people in, in this world, their workplace feels like a prison to them. Right? They have no freedom and they have no respect and they can't wait to get out. It doesn't have to be that way. That's what we're trying to change. So one of my favorite examples of this in action is with and and you brought it to my awareness with one of your talks, Grayston Bakery, which is in Yonkers in New York. And could you just share a little bit about the way that that organization is run and how they're a healing, they're an ashram, if you will, for the yeah. people who run it, the people who work there? So every organization becomes a reflection of the founder's energy and, and the founding energy, right? Why did that thing come into being? And in this case, it was a, a Zen master named Bernie Glassman, who was literally trained as a rocket engineer. He worked for a company in Los Angeles, Lockheed Martin, one of those big guys. He had a PhD in rocket science, aeronautical engineering. But ultimately, he discovered Buddhism. And you know, that's all about suffering and reducing suffering in the world. So he dedicated his life to reducing suffering. And his approach to doing that was very much along Buddhist principles which is that you must fir first bear witness to the suffering of others. And from that bearing of witness, loving action will naturally arise. So for example, being Jewish, he would take groups of people uh, to Europe, right, to uh, various Holocaust sites, right, so that they could then experience or some, in some way try to experience or feel what, what had happened in those places, right? and then come back and become activists on behalf of some of these causes to prevent some of the atrocities. One of the things he realized at some point, living in Yonkers, which has one of the highest per capita incomes of any county, 
in the U.S., but also has one of the highest levels of homelessness of any county. And by the way, this is a common you know, juxtaposition that we see, you know, rich places that have a lot of suffering in them. You know, the two places, two of the places with the highest levels of suicide in the U.S. are two of the richest zip codes, uh, Aspen, Colorado, and Palo Alto, California, where Stanford University is located. Right? There's a lot of suffering alongside prosperity. But here, in this case, it was a lot of homeless people. And he started to say, how can I help ease some of that suffering? And so, of course, what he did was uh, went and spent a week living with the homeless people. He took a group of people, and they all spent that week on the streets uh, and they didn't bring any special resources or any ways to make it easier or more convenient for them. They actually tried to do it the way that people were living it. And at the end of that week, he had a sense of what he could do to alleviate the suffering. And he said what, what he found was that all these people are people who never had a first chance. He said, forget about a second chance. There are millions of people in our country that never even get a first chance. Many people are born into these horrific surroundings, born into ghettos, surrounded by drugs and guns and violence at an early age, terrible schools, right? No real ladder of opportunity. And so they get caught up in that system at an early age. They might do something that gets them into trouble, and then that carries, that stigma stays with them the rest of their life. And the shocking recognition or realization that in this country, in the United States, which has one of the highest, the highest level of incarceration of any country in the world, in absolute numbers and as a percentage of the population. It's way higher than any country. You can think of North Korea or China or you know, Venezuela, whatever you might think of might be the worst. No, we have numbers that are far worse. In fact, there are 70 million Americans that have a criminal record. The same number that have a college degree, by the way. Okay, they're both in the 70s. This is one of what I call the social sadness. Every country has certain things about it that are caused deep, you know, deep, deep suffering. You know, and it's kind of the social side. India is the caste system is one of them. In the U.S., I think our criminal justice system, and we have a medical system and others as well. But so he said about to do. He said, "Why? What happens? People get caught up in that system, and they then pay their dues. They get sent to jail. You know, they serve time. They do all that, and then they come out." And now they want to get their life on track. And they look for a job, and what happens? Nobody wants to give them a job. Because there's a box you have to check on every application. Most applications, they say, have you ever been convicted or found guilty of a crime? If you check that box, most employers will close the door in your face. They will proudly say, we do not hire ex-convicts. We hire people. We do criminal background checks. Okay, It doesn't matter if it's a minor you know, 20 years ago, you possessed five grams of marijuana and you were thrown away for 20 years because of the strict, you know, three strikes and you're out or whatever. You know, laws, incredibly harsh laws in this country. And so then you end up back on the street. People end up becoming addicted. They become homeless, right? They become, they just suffer. And so he said, we're going to start a business. And what's the simplest business I can imagine is a bakery. You can train anybody to bake these things within a, within a week, a few days. And so they, oh, they pioneered this uh, idea of open hiring. So no background checks and no interviews, right? And there's a register there. Now it's online, but it used to be a physical book. You go there and you put your name on it, and they hire the next name on that list. They just go down the list. And no questions asked. You're hired. You get nine months of training. You get paid. 
And then at the end of those nine months, you're put into a job. After which, of course, you have to meet the expectations, etc. But you know, you got started, right? And so, as he said, we don't hire people to bake brownies. We bake brownies to hire people you know, to get them started in their journey of life. And it's incredibly moving to see. We had one of their employees, Dion Drew, who came to our Conscious Capitalism conference in Philadelphia some years ago, and he was in tears as he was talking. He said, "You know, I've been in jail three times." The last time I came out after three years, and every time I pounded the pavement and I knocked on doors and I begged for a job and nobody would give me a job. And then I'm starving and I have to go out there and you know, do something to make some money. And you get caught up again and get arrested again. So this time I found Grayston. They gave me a job. They put me in training and uh, gave me a job. And now he's a training supervisor. He's been there five, six years at that time, and he's making $65,000 a year. He has a daughter, he has an apartment, he has a life. And he said, if it were not for Grayston, I would either be dead or back in jail. I owe them my life. So that's one of the stories in the book, and there are many like that, that people literally say, this is why I'm alive today. This company has enabled me to live. And now I'm actually experience life in, in, in a different way. So that's the power of business. And these are all for-profit businesses right, that we're talking about that can do this. Of course, nonprofits do healing work all the time. But in many ways, most nonprofits exist to heal the suffering that was caused by businesses or traditional ways of being in the world. Right? We want to make it so that we don't cause the suffering in the first place. We should not need so many nonprofits. There are 40 million NGOs out there trying to clean up the mess that we're creating by the way we do things out in the other part of the world, you know, the rest of society. So, so yeah, that's uh, that's an example of a, of a great healing organization. Hmm. So a couple of more things, Raj, that I, I want to hit on with you. And this has been so much fun on my end so far, but you alluded to the list at various points. I think only truth and innocence maybe have come. I mean, love has probably come up as well, but I'm wondering if you could talk about how we could live by the list and what, what the list is and why it's so important. Yeah, so this came to me uh, as part of an ayahuasca journey that I took when I went on the Pachamama experience in Ecuador in 2018. This was with Lynn Twist and then that group, the Pachamama journey that they call it, Pachamama Alliance is the name of the organization. And we spent 10 days with the indigenous people learning about nature, our place in nature with the shamans, recognizing that, you know, we don't come into this world, we come out of this world. And we are every much, every much as part of nature as a tree or a butterfly, yet we separate ourselves. Right? We are here and nature is over there, and, and therefore we end up exploiting and, and, and in many ways killing. You know, in many ways we are committing matricide, we are destroying our mother, which is our planet. And that comes from that disconnection. So part of the purpose of that experience is to reconnect and ground yourself back with nature and see not only the spirit of their living, you know, vibrancy of everything out there and how we're all interconnected and interdependent. And, and the middle part of that trip is an ayahuasca experience, which is voluntary. I mean, it's, it's optional. You don't have to do it, but I was very keen on it because I knew that that is supposed to be a grandmother energy. You know, that's supposed to connect you to Mother Earth, that plant. And it's kind of magical how they, the indigenous people of the Amazon, maybe 10,000 or more years ago, figured out out of the tens of thousands of species of plants that exist there, that if you take this, the root of this and the leaves of this and you boil them together for three days, you get this brew that when ingested gives you access to levels of consciousness that you don't otherwise have and enables healing of a kind that 
it is impossible otherwise. And shamans are able to do these journeys with people and you're lying in this place and somehow you're experiencing something in your psyches that are, is a shared experience. So it's pretty incredible. And so I was very open to that. And I had gone there to learn about healing. And I had all kinds of visions that night. And uh, you know, it was all about healing. You know, one of them, which I'll share before I get to list, is I was shown a long line of people standing under the hot sun. And they're waiting to get a hug from a tiny woman at the end of the line. And I recognized her as Amma. She's known as the Hugging Saint. Amma means mother. The Hugging Saint from India. She's from the south of India. She travels all over the world. She comes to Boston every August. People stand in line for literally 12 hours uh, waiting to get a hug from her. And many of them then walk away in tears, having experienced a kind of unconditional love, perhaps for the first time in their life. And so the message I was given as I'm lying there on, on the banana leaves under the sky with the stars and there was a lunar eclipse and the five planets were lined up in the horizon, the horizon. It's a magical setting. And I've got this voice in my ear as I'm seeing these visions unfold. And the voice says to me that all these people standing in line, they could be hugging each other. They don't need to wait hours to get a hug from that person that we humans are the cause of suffering for each other. You know, most unnecessary suffering on this planet is caused by humans towards other humans and other life forms. We are the source of suffering for each other. We are also the source of healing for each other, as we were talking about earlier. You could hurt the person next to you, and that would be every bit as healing or can, should, can be as, as, as you will that other person. Right? So we can all heal, help each other to heal together. And then the last vision of the night, I got these four words floating in my, in my vision. And they came as an acronym. You know, and I have this tendency to create acronyms for conscious care, you know, for all the four pillars I've got for acronyms, right? That uh, capture the essence of that. So for, he, for leadership, it's uh, selfless. Right? And that stands for the qualities of a conscious leader. Right and etc. So, so this came as as four words, and the acronym was the list. And the voice literally said, "Here's the list. Here is what we need in order to heal. Here's what business needs to heal in order to heal. Here's what people need in order to heal in the world." And the four words came into focus one by one, starting with love. And the message was very simple: every single thing we do in life should come from love, not fear, not greed, not anger, not jealousy. None of the other emotions, even the hardest and harshest thing that you are called on to do should come from a place of love. Even if in a business you have to let somebody go or you have to let somebody die in a hospital, whatever it might be, whatever the setting might be, and you have to do your duty in a way that what is the right thing to do, do it with love. Everything, you know, ask yourself, am I doing this with love? Right? It's a constant reminder that I have to make because often like all of us you end up reacting to things and you do things out of fear it's very common in business we do so much out of fear and greed they are the primary drives right it seems in business not love the second word was innocence that we are all born innocent the one quality we all share when we are born is innocence the rest, you know, the other qualities are different, right? I was born with that trusting and idealistic and whatever nature. And somebody else might be born with a different nature. But the one trait that is in common to all of us is innocence. And then what happens? We lose our innocence. We, in a way, get corrupted by the ways of the world. 
right? Most societies function you know, in a way that basically gets us to use our intelligence to take advantage of each other, climb over each other, win, right? Uh, we lie and cheat to get what we want. And all of that is normalized. And we are taught this is how you need to be. My father kept trying in that way, trying to corrupt me because he said, no, you need to be, you know, you can't hold on to those ideals, etc. And you don't have a choice as a child. You're born with that innocence and then things happen to you. But you do have a choice when you're an adult. And you have a responsibility to choose wisely. You can choose to continue being part of that system of corruption. Or you can choose to live with a kind of innocence, which means not knowingly causing harm or suffering to another. You know, my mother lived that way every day of her life. She was as innocent at 82 as she was when she was a little girl. You know, she never veered from that path of innocence. So how can we choose the innocence? Not the helpless innocence of a child, but the chosen innocence of a strong adult. And the third was simplicity. The love, innocence, simplicity. And the message was the most essential things in life are simple. And we overcomplicate. We are given this incredibly powerful mind. You know, we use that to solve problems, but we also create a level of complexity. And sometimes we get lost in that complexity. We need to remember what the essential things in life are simple. Right? And don't lose sight of those. And the last was the truth. What is our commitment to the truth in business, you know, in politics? Right? In the U.S., we have a lot of talk about what is true and facts and alternate facts and real facts and you know the truth is the truth yeah sometimes there's subjectivity or your truth and my truth but overall there is something called the truth in most situations that should be brought out and the truth is more important and more fundamental than peace because without truth there can be no peace that's why we have the truth and reconciliation right? that's why Gandhi's autobiography was called my experiments with truth truth is so fundamental and we have really lost sight with it right so that phrase that came to me was sort of a gift that flowed through me, not just for me, I think for all of us. It's like love and truth, you know, holding the innocence and the simplicity, right? And I think to me now, the rest of my life is really trying to, trying to uh, live into that. How can I live with that love, innocence, simplicity, and truth in everything that I do? So it's really a two-fold lesson is how can we all heal ourselves? Acknowledge our wounds and traumas and initiate, begin the path of healing. And I do believe psychedelics like ayahuasca and MDMA, which is having miraculous benefits for PTSD sufferers like veterans. I think that's part of it, but there's many other modalities like EMDR and many other things. Actually, a dozen or more new modalities are out there now. Healers heal ourselves and live by the list. Now, to me, that is that's kind of the takeaway lesson for me. And one of the beautiful gifts also of this journey was healing my relationship with my son. Because you talked about cycles, breaking cycles, right? So yes, in a way I was breaking a cycle by trying to heal my father wound and being so different from my father, right? And I had a chapter with that title in the book. And then one day I realized, oh my God, my son also has a father wound because he's special needs and he's so different from me. As I was different from my father, my son is different from me. And I came to see him, you know, he was fine for the first few years, but then as his condition became more intense, I started to see him as kind of a burden, as kind of a responsibility, a heavy one at that. 
and that I can never expect the joys that you expect from a child, you know, getting married and having children and getting a job, that all of that was going to be denied to me. It was so focused on me. And that I just have to now take care of him for the rest of his life. And, you know, I would spend the least amount of time I could with him and send him back to his group home and, you know, just kind of do. And then I realized, oh, my God, my father never accepted me for who I was. And I have not accepted my son. I've only seen him as his, his challenges, not him as a person. And that was sort of an awakening. And then one day my partner Neha says to me, do you realize that your son is the list? Mm. He embodies love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. He's incredibly loving more than just about anybody I've seen. He's very innocent like a little child, even though he's 34 years old now. He keeps life very simple. If he has his, his music and his video games and a few other things that he loves, he's the happiest and most optimistic person in the house. And he cannot tell a lie. He's incapable of that. So here's somebody who's here to teach us, you know, and so it's completely altered my relationship with him. I now cherish him. I cherish my time with him. I don't see him as a burden. You know, I, we have much more fun together. We laugh together. I take him on trips with me. So it's just one of the many, many gifts of this kind of an inner journey. Yes, it's getting that, as I said, the purpose, the inner peace, and the healing. All of those. And these are lifelong pursuits now. It doesn't end. You're never fully there. <laughs> I have learned things since I finished the book that I wish I could have put into the book, but it's an ongoing journey. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'd love to uh, maybe another discussion, another time, talk about the things that you've learned after you wrote the book, because I've, I've just been so, so enjoying this one. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that feels important to share? No, I feel like we've touched upon all of these, uh, all of the important things, you know, the work side and finding my purpose there after being unhappy for so long there. But then the other parts of life were not in harmony. Right? I was happy at work, but not happy in my personal life. And so ultimately, it's about full alignment, right? Who you are, what you say, what you do, what you value. Everything should be in, in harmony and in alignment, right? So you can't be one person at work and one person at home and one kind of life here and a different kind of life there. So I think, yeah, I think we've touched upon most of the key elements here. Awesome. And I do say in the book, I have added reflections at the end of every chapter hmm. based upon what I've shared in that chapter that well, how might it relate to the lived experience of the reader? And, and they might, people start telling me that they're finding those to be beneficial hmm. to think through because, you know, when I started writing this, I struggled a bit because I said, why should I write an autobiography? It wasn't meant originally to be a member. It was going to be a book about the seven steps that I had learned about. Know yourself, love yourself, be yourself, choose your life, express yourself, become whole and heal yourself. That was kind of the framing that had come to me in that silent retreat. But it ended up being something different and I struggled with that. Is mine a story worth telling? Hmm. You know, I'm not a celebrity and I'm not a big star or whatever it might be. But then I realized, you know, the famous quote, I think, from Carl Rogers, that that which is most personal is also most universal. That there are echoes of my story in, in many other people's experience. And people are able to connect surprisingly to a lot of these things in this book. So I think that is the hope for me, that this book gets people to think about things reflect on them and find some healing and, and a path forward uh, in an easier way. And earlier in their life, you know, I had to wait until I was 50, 60 
know, years mm-hmm. old to get to some of those things, you know. So that's really the hope in writing any book, I think, is to, you know, everybody, as, as we say, I, all of us can learn from our own experience, but the brilliant thing is to try to learn from somebody else's experience. And if you can do that, that's that's a great bonus. And we have that available to us. Mm-hmm. That Carl Rogers quote has been in the back of my mind at various points in the conversation. So I'm glad that you brought it in. And I'll, I'll say one of the reflection prompts, I forget exactly what the languaging of the question was, but it was something along the lines of, is there a, a challenging interaction that you've been putting off or a challenging conversation that you've been putting off in your life? And uh, there's many other examples I can give, but I have scheduled a conversation that I've been putting off for years now in the end of July. And so that's that's one very practical, tangible action that was inspired by your question. So just a, another plug for the reflection questions at the end of each chapter. Wonderful. And the one other one that I want to make sure that I mention here, because it was so pivotal for me as well. When one of my planned journeys, I got this message that love that is not expressed is like a check that is never cashed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do any good for anybody. Right? You could have all the love in your heart for somebody and you just take it for granted. That, yeah, I think they, they know. and you know, But they may not. And when you express it to them, it might be life-altering. It might become the most healing and joyful moment of their life. And this happened for me when I was with that coach. I worked for the first time and I told her the trajectory of my life and my work and my relationship with my father and where I come from and, and then how my life has changed since 2005, 2006, when I wrote Friends of Endearment and all the work that has come since. And she was silent and then for a while. And then she said, do you realize that you spent 45 years trying to impress your father? But now you spent the last 15 years honoring your mother with your work. And that's really been your purpose here, to bring your mother's energy. And then she says, does your mother know that? I said, well, I didn't know that until a minute ago. How would she know that? She said, you need to call her and tell her that. I said, oh, we don't talk like that in my family. You know, we talk about the weather and how your knee's doing, you know, neutral subjects. She said, no, it's important. I said, well, my father picks up every time I call. And if I, and he puts it on speaker. And if I say these things, he's going to say, what's wrong with him? Why is he talking like that? She said, no, it's important. I said, well, I'm going to India in three weeks. I'll tell her in person. Why do I have to do it now? She said, no, your mother is 81. I don't know what happens. So I called her the next day and you know, it turned into the most healing conversation of my life. Because I said, Mommy, everything I've done that has made a difference in the world that people have been impacted by is because of you. What you showed us and how you took care of us and how you showed us what love really is. And that's really what has made a difference. And I, I don't know if I would be here without you. She just started crying and she said, Raj, I am nothing. I'm nothing. I said, no, you're everything. You know, without you, I don't know if I would have survived this life, you know. And so it became such a healing conversation for me and for her because she always thought of herself as insignificant. She didn't matter. She was only educated till the eighth grade. She didn't speak English. My father was this brilliant PhD, gold medal winning scientist and so forth. And so she said, I'm just here to you know, cook and clean or whatever for this. And she realized then, yeah, she did make a huge impact. She's leaving a legacy behind and so that, I, I can't imagine if I had not been given that opportunity, how would I would have felt if she died a year later? Mm-hmm. And all that love would have been unexpressed and would not have given me the joy and her the peace near the end of her life. I have that recording on my iPhone. You know, I can listen anytime. I miss my mother because both my parents died a year later. 
And the last thought I want to leave you with, you know, when my parents died within four months of each other in 2019, sudden, I mean, they were both in good health and things happened and suddenly they're gone. My father first. And then I go to the funeral. I get there like a few hours after he died and there's a whole right, big funeral, lots of people. I look around. It's a very solemn occasion. Everybody's very sad, but there's no tears. Nobody's crying except my mother. The only sound you could hear of crying is my mother. My sister, me, my, nobody. And then four months later, my mother died, and you could not, nobody could stop crying. There were hundreds of people crying the week before she died, and after she died, and after she died. And the, you know, the tears were overwhelming, overflowing with, with, with grief. And I said, what happens at the end of your life? Is it grief or relief? You know, when some people die, there's, there's a kind of relief. When my grandfather died, people were waiting for him to die so that they would not be under his oppressive, controlling, you know, rule over their life. And people were waiting for years for him to die. So at the end of a momentous life, all you people feel is a kind of relief. And that's... What does that say? So how can we live in a way that at the end of your life there's, there's grief and there's gratitude? Grief that you're gone, gratitude that you were here. You know, that doesn't just happen. We have to start living that way. So you know, that's kind of the last message from, from this book. Well, Raj, this is a beautiful note to end on. I, I typically ask at the end of every interview what it means to you to live a meaningful life, and I am going to forego because... This was a, a perfect spot to end. And uh, I'll also presence right now, uh, every episode I raise awareness for an organization of the guest choice and you've selected Pratham USA. Is that is that how you pronounce it? Yes, yeah. Pratham. So I'll make sure to link, of course. I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. I'll link to all of your books, places that folks can connect with you, your talks. The numerous resources and folks who were mentioned throughout the conversation, I'll, I'll do my best to capture all of that in the show notes. This was the type of conversation that I think if anyone only tuned in for a random five-minute soundbite, that they would get lots of downloads of it, uh, insight, wisdom. And I was just deeply moved by the book. I was deeply moved by this conversation. And I'm so grateful that you reached out to me and uh, let me know that you were releasing a new book and you wanted to be on my podcast. This was a really memorable one. And I'm just so appreciative and grateful for your time. Oh, you're very welcome, Mike. And thank you for being such a wonderful listener and, and, uh, and for reading the book and uh, connecting with it at such a deep level. I really appreciate that. Mm. So to all of you who are listening, I'm wishing you a beautiful rest of your day or evening. Take good care. Lots of love. If there's someone in your life that matters to you, let them know that you love them. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.
Thank you.